0: Alright, tonight we're going to discuss the career of Ezra which is known to us mostly from the book of Ezra and partly from the book of Nehemiah. Uh, Other information can be gathered from the apocryphal works like Estras, which is not in our Bible but is in the Bible of some of the others and in the, the literature of Chazal. Well, in the first temple days the leadership of the Jewish people could be divided along three lines. There was the king, the Davidic monarch, who held political power, controlled the, the, the levers of the state. There were the kohanim, the priests, who were ecclesiastical officials only, and maybe to a certain limited extent were involved in religious instruction for the masses. That's what the Torah was expecting of them, although they didn't really do it. And the third uh, realm of leadership was prophetic leadership, moral leadership, keeping the kings in line that they don't overstep their bounds. So you have the Navi, who is of limited power, but moral suasion, the Kohen, who is in the realm of, of worship, of Avodah, and you have the king who runs the state. In the early Second Temple period, there was an attempt to have continuity, at least in the Second Commonwealth, with what was in the First Commonwealth. So it was important to have members of the Davidic line representing the lay leadership, the political temporal leadership. Even if there's not going to be a king, at least have someone who, under better circumstances, might have been a king. You're going to have Kohanim, who are responsible for uh, officiating in the temple. And you also have Nevim. (coughs) Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi are regarded as the last of the three Nevim. Malachi being sort of a phantom figure we don't know much about. We'll talk a little bit about him later tonight. So Chagai and Zechariah are the two key figures who prophesy between the years 520 and 515. So there is prophetic leadership early in the Second Temple. But prophecy ceases. Why? How? Who knows? So it's gone. That pillar is, is gone. What about the other two? Political leadership and ecclesiastical leadership. Well having members of the Davidic dynasty in, you know, as part of society was important to the Jews, but may have been regarded as dangerous by the Persians. And so whereas Shesh and and Zerubbabel are, are mentioned in the early part of the uh, return, the return to Zion, they disappear. We don't hear from them again. And political authority is, invest, is vested in other figures, non-Davidic figures appointees of the Persians, sometimes a Jew, sometimes not a Jew. Okay. But what about the Kohanim? So the Kohanim take on a new role, not just as officiants in the Beit HaMikdash in the temple with with sacrificial worship, with the the cult, but rather as leaders of society and that what will emerge is a theocracy, rule by religion. Judaism becomes the law of the land. How? We'll see tonight. But when Judaism becomes the law of the land, the priests, who are most learned, in the absence of any uh, Chachmei Yisrael, you know, lay scholars, that will happen later on, the priests are running the religion and running the state. And the Kohen Gadol becomes effectively the head of state. How all this develops, we'll see in the 7th chapter of Ezra. So, chapter 7 tells us who Ezra Alami Bavel he Ezra came up from Babylonia. so Hashem and he is an expert scribe in the Torah of Moses Israel it was given by the God of Israel Hashem and the king gave him everything he wanted. so this Ezra is a Babylonian Jew who is coming to the land of Israel with a reputation as a great scholar, as a scribe, as a Kohen. He has all the, uh, the pedigree that he needs, and the king likes him. The Persian authorities find, uh, find him to be a, a useful figure for their purposes, and they'll give him what he wants. What does he want? To impose Judaism on the Jews of Eretz Israel. That's his desire, that's his goal. Well, when does he get there? So last week we spoke about the the chronologies of the conventional historians in the the, uh, literature of Chazal, and we went through that, we don't have to do it again. The point is, we're going to go with the conventional wisdom, that (coughs) Ezra comes to Eretz Yisrael in the seventh year of Artach Shasta, Artaxerxes. The problem, of course, is there were two of them one begins his term in the year 465 so year 7 is the year 458 before the common era the other one begins his term in the year 404 or 405 so that's his seventh year is 398 before the common era so you have to take your pick most historians will take the year 458 as the year of the arrival of Ezra because we know about Nehemiah and Nehemiah was probably in the year 444 and they may have been contemporaries and overlap so it's m- unlikely that Ezra was in the year 398 it's more likely he was in the year 458 so he shows up to Eretz Yisrael. Um, the text tells us his genealogy dating back all the way to Aharon HaKohen. All the generations dating back to Aaron the High Priest in the days of the, of the Torah. Which means that he has the the necessary Yichus to function as Kohen Gadol. Or at least as a Kohen. Was he Kohen Gadol? So if you read the Tanakh, our Bible, never says he was a Kohen Gadol. And there's a laundry list of names of people who were Kohenim Golim. He's not there. In the literature of Chazal, it's a debatable point. In the Apocrypha, it says he was Kohen Gadol. So was he, wasn't he? I don't know. But he had power, because he had the government's uh, weight behind him. Then it says, He prepared his heart to expound upon the Torah of God and to teach Israel the law and statute. So he was a lamdan. He learned a lot. Not only was he a sofer who was an expert in the text, but he was able to apply the text to contemporary circumstances. That here in Bab- where he was in Babylonia, not all of Torah is applicable the mitzvot tatuliot ba'aretz, the mitzvahs of the land, and, men, and the sacrificial worship, that doesn't happen in Babylonia, but he studied everything, and was able to give instruction to Eretz Yisrael uh, Jewry, who were going to observe the full gamut of mitzvot. Okay. The re- literature of Chazal emphasized how great Ezra was. With respect to being, him being a Kohen, we have the following passage in Kohelet Rabbah. It says, Who Ezra Alami Bavel Ilu haya Hayaharon Kayam? If Aaron was alive in his day, Haya Ezra Gadomi Menu Bishato, Ezra would have been greater than Aaron. That's a pretty big statement. He would have been greater than Aaron a coin. Normally we say there's Yiridat Hadorot. What does that mean? A decline of generations. Not uh, a spiritual uh, elevation as time goes on, but rather a descent into the abyss. And hopefully Mashiach comes and we'll, we'll, we'll be saved from uh, our, our Tumah. But, but the point is that we go down in spirituality the further we remo- remove we are from the Sinaitic revelation. And here, Ezra is even greater than Aharon. Okay, it's one point. What about his relationship to Moshe Rabenu? Ezra's relationship to Moshe. So we have a Tosefta in Sanhedrin that says the following. <coughs> Rabbi Yosio Ezra, Shetinatain Torah al Ezra was worthy enough that the Torah could have been given through his hands. Il Malei kidmo Moshe, had it not been for the fact that Moses preceded him by 800 years. Nem rabba Moshe, Aliyah, it says with respect to Moshe that he went up, Aliyah. Venem Ezra, Aliyah, and it says the same thing of going up with regard to Ezra. Moshe aliyah shenemar, Moshe Allah el ha Elokim, that Moses went up on the mountain to greet God, Mount Sinai. V'nemra be Ezra Aliah, who Ezra alami Bavel, that Ezra went up from Babylonia. Ma aliyah Moshe Torah just as Moses who went up taught to, Torah to, to, to Israel, so too Ezra who went up taught to, Torah to, to, to Israel. So we're comparing Ezra and Moshe saying that he's basically on par with Moshe, and if not for an accident of history, he would have been Moshe. Why this need to extol Ezra beyond anything we're accustomed to? Yeah? (laughs) Okay, so bear in mind that this is rabbinic literature 600 years later doing it, not in his own time. So why why is the rabbinic literature telling us this? So, f- in order to explain, we have to f- spend thirty seconds on a, essentially a non-orthodox theory. In the critical theory of the Bible, who is Ezra? Ezra is R. R stands for what? One of the writers of the. Uh, t- well, writer would be W. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there's well, the, J the, E the P prescri- and D. Prescri- so so so. He, he, some think he's the peace scribe, but most likely not. R is the redactor. That Ezra is seen as the redactor of all the documents that comprise the Bible. The, the, the five books of Moses. Ch'misheh Torah. Now, that's a, a, a heterodox viewpoint. We'll, we'll cast well, aside it, He
1: basically, from six year, 600 years later, and uh-huh. the base of parasitic Judaism, going into yeah. you know, the post-exile, I mean, the, the yeah. exile again, with the temple, and the temple was destroyed at this point. The second one. 600 years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they were looking at him. He was the second Moses, so to say. The Jews came back. To the okay, the good, good, the good. Republic, All right. And they looked upon that as a redo. In fact, Correct. In after the Civil War. Correct.
0: Okay. So Ezra is doing for the second commonwealth what the great heroes of the very ancient past did for the first commonwealth. Give them a leg to stand on, religiously. So, the, so, he's the redactor according to the, the, critics, the critical theory. But, even within the tradition, we find a tacit acknowledgement that Ezra tinkered with the Torah. How, how did he do it? In what respect did he tinker with the Torah? So, first of all, we have the nekudot. There are the dots that are above the letters of certain words. Uh, we find the following passage in Bamidbar Rabbah, Lama Nakud, why do certain words have dots over them? if Elijah the prophet will come and ask why I included these words in, this, in, in the text uh, I put dots on them to indicate that these are a questionable standing and maybe they shouldn't be there and if he says you did good to include this part of the text I'll delete the dots how do you like that? it's saying that there are certain passages of the Chumash that are question whether or not they should appear in the text or not, and to indicate the, the, the Safek about the, uh, the, the, exact, the, the, the correct text, we'll put in a kudot, and they can be deleted if need be. That's already a quasi-heretical viewpoint in the eyes of some people, yet it's in, in Kohelet Rabbah. So now we go to the issue of the script. The issue of the script appears in Tosefta, but it's also in the Gemara and Sanhedrin, Dach Chafalach the Gemara says, Amar Marzutra, B'Tzchilat Nitna Torah L'Yisrael Biktava Ivri U'Lashon Kodesh. Originally the Torah was given to Israel in the Paleo-Hebrew script and the Hebrew language. Lashon Kodesh, the Holy tongue. Chazra V'Nitna L'Hem B'Ezra B'Ktava Yivri U'Lashon Arami It was then given again to Israel in the days of Ezra. So Ezra is like a second coming of the Torah. In... The Ashuri, the Assyrian script, and in Aramaic. But, what happened? Berarula Henli Yisrael, the Israelites chose for themselves Ketav Ashurit, the Assyrian script, v'lashon Kodesh in Hebrew. had Hedyotot, and they left behind for the simpletons Ketav Ivri, the Paleo Hebrew script, v'lashon Rami, and Aramaic. And who are these simpletons? My Hedyotot, Amaravhista, Kutai, the Kuthians, the Arameans, the, the, uh, the Samaritans. This is a gem- the line in the Gemara Sanhedrin. Now what happened here? We know, without a shadow of a doubt, that the Paleo-Hebrew script, which has some more spidery letters, I'm sure some of you have seen the chart comparing our Hebrew letters with the old Hebrew letters, it's uh, thinner, thinner uh, letters, not the block letters that we have today, that was around in ancient times. And the script that we have today was borrowed from another culture. Why is it called Ketav Ashuri? Because it came to the Jews from Ashur, from Assyria. Now this leads to a theological difficulty. Because if you want to say that the, 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 the words on the page, what you look at in the parchment, could never change from the days of Moses to the, till, till now, how could anyone, under any authority, even a great man like Ezra, change the text of the, the, the font of the Torah, the orthography of the Torah? It, it, it cannot be done. So there are those who would argue that there never was a Paleo-Hebrew, that there always was Ketav Ashuri. All right, but that's an historical point of view, that if you want to say it as a fundamentalist uh, theory, okay, fine, but it's wrong. Then, another theory says, there was Ketav Ashuri in the very, very old days, the same that we, one that we have now, the Torah was given in that Ketav, but along the way, it got switched to the Ketav Ivri, the Paleo-Hebrew, and then was switched back to the Ketav Ashuri. Now, why would that have happened? So there are two versions of why that might have happened. One is because, as, a, as the Tosefta explains, the Jews sinned. And the beautiful Ketav Ashuri, which is called Ashuri because it's me'usharet, it's beautiful, was uh, taken away from us, and we were given this ugly script of the Paleo-Hebrew. And then when we returned in the days of Ezra and became from again, we got the good script. Now, that's a very nice uh, interpretation, but it's of a homiletic value. You can't, uh, as a, uh, from a historical point of view, accept that uh, at all. But it, it, it sounds nice. Another theory is, and this has a better leg to stand on, that the Qatav was the original, but it was so holy that they didn't use it. It was on the Ten Commandments, okay, the letter Samech and Mem B'neis Hayu Omdim, which means what?
2: It mm-hmm.
0: That it was round, and because it went all the way through, so you have a, a block that's just standing there, the, the, the laws of gravity would force it down, but by miracle, it stayed in place, the Samech and the Mem, so the Ashuri script that we have, which has those round letters, okay, was around in the days of the Shnei Luchot the but because it was so holy, they didn't even write Sifrei Torah with it. They used the, the roates, they used the, the, the Ivri, the Paleo-Hebrew script, for the next 700 years. And then, for whatever reason, they brought back the Ashuri script for popular consumption in the days of Ezra. Now, this also is ahistorical, but I, could, I can appreciate the effort by those who came up with this theory, because yes, there are certain things in Judaism that are so holy that we don't use it. Like what? The name of God. Exactly. So this is plausible, but still ahistorical. All right. What then really happened? What really happened is that the Paleo Hebrew script was the original, the Katavivri, and because there was no longer in use among Judean society, it was switched to the Ivri If that is too radical a position for some of the Tanoim to accept, all right, so they didn't accept it, but that's basically what happened. Now, why did Ezra do it? Ezra is concerned for the dissemination of religious knowledge among the masses, because they're not religious at this point, point. and in the previous commonwealth, religious knowledge was kept hidden, intentionally so, by the ecclesiastical authorities, who, who alone had access to uh, holy writings, and the common person never saw it. Now we're going to see in the, in the enactments that are attributed to Ezra, the Takanot Ezra, this concept is uh, the dominant concept, that re- religion should be made available to everyone, they should know it, and not be ignorant of their own faith and their own heritage. Okay, so in these respects, even the, the, the traditional literature shows that, that Ezra was playing around with the, the, uh, the, the, the Torah, giving it to us in a form that was palatable, that was useful to, to our people. And that's why it's necessary to say he was as great as Moses and great as Aaron, because he did things that no one else could get away with. Okay. Don't people try to explain the
2: letters <coughs> and Aleph is a Yud and a Bob and uh, made up you know, it's made up of different letters and try to give explanations for words from <coughs> those letters that are put together?
0: You mean like a chet is, is a Zion and a Zion? Right. Yeah, sure. I mean, but uh, so but if
2: this was Ashurid, then how does
0: that fit in? Or like Gamatrias, the, these kinds of of fun versions of Torah are are fun, and they're useful for moral purposes. But does it mean that there's you know absolute truth to it? I wouldn't worry about that. Yeah,
2: around this time, or the time, let's say, around uh, seventy. 70 AD. Yeah. Aramaic was in use. Yes. What type of alphabet did they <coughs> use? Was it the same alphabet as the Hebrew?
0: Okay, so the alphabet in the year 70, for those who spoke Aramaic, was exactly the same as Hebrew.
2: What about at the time of Ezra?
0: Uh, the, uh, as far as I know, the alphabet is the same, with the exception being the, the Sofit letters, the Menatzvach, uh, were incorporated into our our version of the Torah, uh, despite having not been possibly in the older versions of the Torah, which is another issue uh, where it, sa- it says in the Gemara, that the Tzofit the, the letters were uh, established by the Tzofim. Who are the Tzofim? What is it, Tzofa? A seer, Mount Scopus. How are Tzofim? So those who see, who have vision, the Prophets... So then they ask a question in the Gemara. How could it be that the Menatz Vach Tzofim if it's changing the Torah, it's a Mosaic Torah? And the answer they give is v'chazu v'yistum, It was forgotten and it was brought back. Which is the classical answer you give when you have a, a really tough question that you don't have a good answer for.
2: The thrust of my question is, is there any archaeological <laughs> or historical record of an evolution of Aramaic? I don't think...
0: Uh, I, don't know, I, I know nothing about that. Nothing about that.
2: So there's really no, so I would think that there's, as far as Hebrew goes, there's, there's no real uh, historical basis for, um, for tracing the, uh, the evolution of the Proto-Hebrew to the, uh, the modern. All, all
0: we have are you know, the archaeological records over time. And what font are they using? A- and the question is: At what point did they switch <coughs> from the Ketav eight, the Ketav to the Ketav And it's roughly what the Gemara says it is—twenty-four hundred years ago. Okay. That's pretty much when it happened. Okay. And so, how
1: do we know that the original language? We do
0: have. Oh, we have plenty, plenty of record. Yeah, can you sure.
1: To show the old script. Yes,
0: yes, yes. There's plenty of stuff in the old script.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, in other words, what we saw in the Ten Commandments movie, of the Ten Commandments. That was it. That was it. Could be. Could be. No. Are the of the law? <laughs> All right. So, uh, the definitive version is Mel Brooks' History of the
2: World. <laughs> you, you got it. But there were
0: three. So, now oh. Ezra is credited. Ezra is credited with ten enactments. What are they? So, the Gemara in Babakama b- 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 eighty two a tells us what they are. S asarat hakano tikein Ezra. Sh- one, shekorin b'mincha b'shabat. We d- read the Torah Saturday afternoon. V'korin b'sheni v'chamishi, we read the Torah on Monday and Thursday. V'danin b'sheni v'chamishi, we have the B'ten sit as a court on Monday and Thursday. V'me'chabsin b'sheni v'chamishi and you do laundry on, on Thursday, not Friday. Ochlin shum b'arav Shabbat, and you eat garlic on Friday. V'shetei ishamesh shakemet v'ofah, that the woman should get up early Friday and bake bread. V'shetei isham that a woman should wear a belt that a woman should wash her hair before um, immersing in the mikveh. That the, uh, the spice merchant, merchants should go around to the cities. And a man who had a seminal emission should go to the mikveh before studying Torah or praying. Now, what's the purpose of these enactments? Some of them are to preserve uh, chastity uh, and the related ones are to increase the likelihood of marital fidelity uh, within the Jewish fold. So the perfume, so that the ladies should, should look nice and smell nice, the issue of going to the mikveh properly with, with, with the halachic exactitude, uh, the issue of uh, the belt, for, uh, the people shouldn't walk around half naked. All right, so uh, there were sexual concerns, which we'll get to with intermarriage being a problem in the days of Ezra. So the desire to have good, pious uh, women being the wives of the Jewish men as opposed to some other scenario which is not good. Okay, that's one major concern. The other is study of Torah. You should read it on Shabbos, in the afternoon. Read it Monday, Thursday. And even the Beit on Monday, Thursday relates to the reading of the Torah. Why have the Beitin Monday, Thursday? Since people are litigious by nature, and they want to have cases settled by uh, some judicial authority. So if you have the courts open on the same days that you're reading the Torah the people who come from the boondocks to hear their, have their cases heard will also get a bissel Torah so it's all, it all ties together um, and the the the, uh, the, tzvila, the going to the mikvah for a balkari for a, a man who had an omission the point was we're going to study Torah but it isn't like reading a textbook in school it's a holy Torah and you have to treat it with reverence and you can't be like an oisvarf and then learn Torah that's the idea so, these are the decrees attributed to Ezra. Are they really enacted by Ezra? Who knows? With all Takanot uh, that are uh, ascribed to biblical heroes of the past, be it Shlomo HaMelech, or Davin HaMelech, or ben Kenaz, or whoever it might be, we don't really know where these laws come from, why, or if them Merchagai Zechai Malachi are credited with some things, we don't know where these laws come from. But we do know that they're very, very old. So they're, they're attributed to some hero from the ancient past. In the case of the Takanot Ezra, it actually does make a lot of sense thematically that he would have been the one to enact some of these kind of, of rules. Okay. Uh, he's also credited with writing the book of Ezra and writing the book of Dere Hayamim. So he's, a, uh, aside from being a redactor of, of, of parts of Torah, he's also an author of parts of Tanakh. Okay. Now, the next issue is his arrival in Eretz Yisrael. So Artaxerxes makes a major donation to the temple and authorizes Ezra and his underlings to ha- uh, be firmly in control of religious life in the temple in Jerusalem, and in the province of Yehud. Uh, and they are given the right to impose financial, corporal, and capital punishment on whomever they so choose. So here the, the, the power of the state, the gun, the sword, is supporting uh, the theocracy. Why did this happen? That's a major question, and unfortunately, we don't have an answer. Possibly, the most important question in the history of Judaism is why did the Persian monarch or Persian governing authorities give such power to a religious figure to impose his will on the Jews of Eretz Israel? Now, you could theorize why, but every theory has is just all speculation. We really don't know, but we wish we did, because when did Judaism? become uh, the, the religion of the Jews, of Eretz Yisrael at least, right then and there. In the Bayat Rishon period, was the average uh, Is- Israelite pious and observant of the Mosaic law? No. In the exilic period? Who knows? We don't know. In the early Second Temple period? Definitely not. The Book of Nehemiah makes that very clear. So when did the average Jew become an Orthodox Jew? In the days of Ezra. Why? Because the, the Persians allowed for it. Why did they allow for it? We have no clue. We really don't know. We wish we did. Okay. So, the, the text continues, and it verifies the genealogy of those in the party, uh, in the traveling party. This is important because uh, genealogical purity was of absolute importance to them. If you had a flaw in the family tree, if there, was, you know, if there was a Roosevelt up there in the family tree, you were no good. You had to be Jewish through and through. If you weren't, you couldn't go on this trip. It was meant for only the real hundred percent Jews. Who goes with them? There are priests, and there are Davidides for continuity from the past. Who's missing? Who gets the second aliyah? Levi. Levi. There are no levim. Why no levim? Huh? Okay, so the answer is there is some work for them to do, but it isn't very important. They have a subsidiary role to the Kohanim. And so if you're ensconced in Babylonia in a pretty comfy position, uh, and you have the option of going to Eretz Yisrael for uh, an underling job, you know, for uh, like a deputy assistant rabbi job, are you really going to go? No, you're going to stay back in the diaspora. So Ezra had to uh, maneuver to get some levium to go with him. And eventually they, they, they did. Okay so that they leave for, from Babylonia in the first month. Like the exodus from Egypt, they're leaving in the first month. There are parallels between, uh, what we saw in the, the, the days of, of Cyrus, okay, 538, there were parallels to the more distant past. Now in 458, with Ezra, there will be parallels to the, the distant past. And the, the Yitzhak Mitzrayim is one of them. Now there's a pasuk in Yeshayahu chapter 52, which says the following, Ki lo b'chipazon When did they go out? We say it in the seder. So when they go out of Babylonia, back to Eretz Yisrael for the uh, the restoration, it's not going to be in haste, being chased out by some uh, some Pharaoh on a horse, but rather it's going to be a methodical effort. Okay, all right. This is going to be a pleasant experience. Slow, methodical, it's going to take time. You leave in the first month, like the Yitzhak Mitzrayim, but you're going to get there eventually. Okay, When do they get there? That's the question. They arrive in Eretz Yisrael in the fifth month. What else happened in the fifth month? The destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, the Chorban Habait. So it's therapeutic. It has therapeutic value that they arrive in Israel... At the beginning of the fifth month, the Chodesh <laughs> Hachamishi, which was a month of crying, of Bechiyah, of Tzom, fasting. Alright? When they get there, they dilly-dally for about three days before they arrive in Yerushalayim. Now
1: this is Chodesh
0: Av we're Av, yeah. This is
1: a yeah. summer event.
0: Summer event, yes. Who arrives in Yerushalayim on the third day? If you get this wrong, you, it's disgraceful, because it's this week's Pasha. Who arrives in Yerushalayim on the third day? No, no, no. Avraham! Avraham goes to the Akedat Yitzchak. Okay, but Yom Shiva, he sees, he, looks, he lifts up his eyes, He sees the place from a distance. And what place is that? The Haram Oriah. So again, we're going to have a parallel here in Ezra to the distant past. They, on the third day they get to Jerusalem, like Avraham. Okay. Now uh, before they go... They actually fasted because they were afraid that along the road there would be highwaymen and bandits and robbers who would attack them. It says uh, very clearly in the text that Ezra declined, or rather just didn't ask for soldiers to protect, to accompany their traveling party along the way. Had he asked for it, the Persian monarch would have for surely given it. After all, the, the guy's donating uh, all sorts of uh, money and, and, and animals and, and salt to the Beit HaMikdash. He could afford to give a few troops to protect the caravan. But Ezra didn't want that. He wanted to go it alone. But, it, but going it alone, you need God's protection. <coughs> so they fast before they go. Uh, they get to Yerushalayim, and they offer sacrifices. Then Ezra realizes we have a problem on our hands. The crisis of intermarriage. Ezra prays and fasts and convenes a mandatory gathering at which, uh, and, and by the way, this mandatory gathering, the threat was, if you don't show up, we will declare all of your possessions ownerless. And this is the origin in the Tanakh for the, for the Tamudic concept of Hefker beitin Hefker. That uh, if the court declares something to be without owner, then it's, it's a free for all. It's Hefker. Yeah? Do we know how many Jews approximately uh, came with Ezra and how many uh, lived in About Israel? 1,600. That's it. Came how with Ezra. how
2: many lived in Bavel
0: at the time? We have no idea. There's no way of knowing. So 43,000 are credited as go- going in the, in the first wave with Zrubavel, although that number may be slightly inflated. Um, so it's a small group, comparatively speaking. Uh, the bulk of the Judean population is, would have been from the earlier wave or from the pre-existing population that never left. So Ezra is coming with a, a couple of guys but is going to take charge. Okay? Um, the Jews lived in was, was 70 years we're talking about? Well, 70 years between 586 and the, and the, th- the, com- the completion right. of the, the, the Second Temple in 516. But we're talking now 458, which is a good 130 years after the korban. Okay, so
2: that was 80 years after (laughs) the first wave.
0: 80 years after the first wave. So anybody who came with Rubevel is long dead. We're now two, three generations later. Is it
1: plenty of time for assimilation
0: to? Absolutely, absolutely. So all the all the people are are convened, and they uh, a, a ruling is issued that if you married a foreign wife. She's gone. And not only is she gone, who else is gone? Kids. The kids are gone. Whoa, that's pretty tough. So the question is, what does the Torah actually say about intermarriage? It's a very very difficult question. Because if we go back to Devarim chapter 7, verse 3, it says, Do not marry them. Don't give... Uh, your daughter to their son will be told to and don't take their daughter for your son. But about whom is that verse discussing? So the previous verse talks about the Canaanite nations, which means this verse is also talking about the Canaanite nations. What else does the Torah say about the Canaanim? Deuteronomy chapter 20 from those cities and nations that God is giving you uh, as as an inheritance as a heritage you shall not let one soul live but rather destroy them all in order that you not learn from their toevot you don't want to learn from their abominations and then do the same thing and be guilty in the eyes of your own God So, the Canaanites are very, very bad. They're corrupt uh, in in all forms of perversity and idolatry. So, we don't want them around. Get rid of them. If they're dead, obviously you can't marry them. But the problem, of course, is that they weren't all eliminated. The the book of Yahshua, the book of Shoftim, uh, the books of of Shmuel and Malachim make very clear that there never was a complete eradication of Canaanite society. They survived, uh, even into the Davidic period. So there was social interaction and there was uh, some form of religious influence, a deleterious religious influence by the, Can- by the Canaanites towards our people. But eventually the, these Canaanites are irrelevant. They, they, they cease to exist or to be identifiable. And there are other nations who are causing us trouble, like Ammon, Moab, Edom... Okay, uh, the nations to the south and to the east who are a thorn in our side. Well, <coughs> who might the Jews... We we're talking about
1: nations who have a relationship to
0: us... That's true. Big time.
1: Their family.
0: Uh, uh, the yeah, but tell, tell that to the Arabs in East Jerusalem, their family. <laughs> their <They're> in-laws. <laughs> in-laws, yeah. So, uh, now if the Pesach says that you can't marry Canaanites, why is Ezra being so tough on the people for having married Edomites, Moabites, Ammonites, whatever it might be? Well, Bamid Bar-Rabba has an exposition of the verse. It says like this. Ketiv, it's, the verse in Ezra tells us, now let us make a covenant with our God, <inaudible> to eliminate all the women, and all those who were born from them, by the advice and counsel of God, <inaudible> so is it by the tradition, that, that, uh, that I am that being punished, meaning the person who is being kicked out, so we are going to follow the Torah, <inaudible> but what part of the Torah? So the don't marry them. Because the verse after not marrying them says, "Why should you not marry them? Because they will turn the heart of your son from away from Me, meaning God." and they will worship foreign gods. So someone will steer your child. Religiously, in the wrong direction, take him off the derech. So, the, so we interpret the verse to mean, "Bincha habam Yisraelit." When your son is the son is the product of a Jew, a Jewish woman, karui bincha, <speaking in Hebrew> then it's your son. The bincha habam karui bin al but the son who is the the the. the uh, The son of a heathen woman is not called your son, but rather her son. Basically, the key word is yasir. Not yasir arafat, yasir. That is uh, a a verb. So and so will cause someone else to turn astray. But who is the actor in in that verb? What gender? Male. Male. Yasir. Male. Therefore, the male is turning your son away. It must be in this mixed marriage. The goy is the man, and the Jew is the woman. So matrilineal descent makes you Jewish. And if we flip the script, and the man is a Jew, and the woman uh, is uh, the non-Jew, so it wouldn't be the man turning the kid astray. The man would be trying to keep the kid in in the fold. And that isn't your kid. So if the Kushit has the baby, then not Jewish. It's interesting they used the word Kushit, which has, you know, racial connotation and, and ethnic connotation, but it didn't really mean that there. It just meant in general uh, if it's a non-Jew. At least I think that's what it means. I would like to believe there was no racial component. Is this the halakhic basis for matrilineal. Yes, descent? absolutely. So if if that interpretation is correct, then matrilineal descent is the is is uh, is the halakha as it should be. Okay, so. You know so, who the mother you know is.
1: I hear that, but, in general, society speaking, you know, like the kid's raised as a Jew. What's the, what's the hassle if the mother's not Jew?
0: Okay, so that's exactly the point why, in the pre Ezra period, we can safely assume there was no matrilineal principle that it was probably patrilineal, or,
1: the are now
0: or or there was no matrilineal or patrilineal. It was simply, wherever the kid is raised, that's his religion. Basically, yes, because there's no record in the, in, the, in the Tanakh for earlier than Ezra of this being the case of matrilineal. All we have is, if you lived among the Jews, you were a Jew. And if you didn't live among the Jews, regardless of your, your, your genealogical background, you were a Tenoch Shanish, but you were gone. That was it. You weren't going to have a, a Judaic identity. And, and, and King From Gentile women. Okay, so let's quote those verses right now. The, uh, King Solomon, Malachim Aleph Kings one eleven one. One, the Hamelch Shlomo nashim King Solomon loved foreign women, both, many of them. Vedbad Paro and the daughter of Pharaoh, Moaviot, Ammoniot, Edomiot, Sidoniot, So he liked the Hittite women, the Sidonite women from Lebanon, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Egyptians. So he was married to a lot of foreign women, and what happened to the offspring they were part of the part of am Yisrael, and one of them became king okay then the, the next pasuk says min hagoyim asher hashem bnei yisrael bahem he took wives from among those nations about whom god said to israel don't marry them lo and they won't come unto you now what what that pasuk is, is quietly admitting is that not all nations fall in that category. Some nations fall in that category. There are specific nations we're not supposed to marry. But there isn't a generic ban on intermarriage. That's the, that's the key lesson from Pasuk Bet right there. He broke the rules by marrying women from nations that you weren't supposed to marry into. Now, wh- where, where are these rules? In the Torah. You can't marry the seven Canaanite nations. And who else can't you marry? That's right. Amon, Moab, and Mitzrayim, the third generation, you can marry in. Okay? So, Dor Shlishi. Dor Shlishi. Well, these rules were broken. And that's why he was you know, guilty of some transgression. Not because he just intermarried. Intermarriage was okay. Well, <coughs> this uh, book of Ezra takes a very, very hard line on, the, on intermarriage. There is another book in the, in the Bible that takes a much softer stance. And what is that? The book of Ruth. So in the book of Ruth, you have an Ammonite woman, a Mo- Moabite woman, who marries a Jew. He dies. Then she marries another Jew, has a baby. That baby is the granddaddy of the king. Uh, happy ending. Happy ending. When was the book of Ruth written? Who wrote the book of Ruth? Who's credited with writing the Book of Ruth? Okay, so Shmuel is given credit in some quarters for writing it. Um, But there's plenty of textual evidence to say that it was was not written until way, way after the events it portrays. What's the most significant piece of of evidence that the Book of Ruth was written, written many, many centuries after the events described? So David is just a couple of generations later. I'm talking about a lot later. Vizot lefanim beYisrael al al and this is what was done lefanim beYisrael, which means what? Some long time ago. And what would they do? Shalaf ish naa lo, take off the shoe. That when you make a deal, somebody takes off a shoe. Well, if it's vizot lefanim if the text has to tell us that, it means by the time it's being written, nobody's doing that anymore. It's out of style. You, th- that expression is of Israel means that we're writing centuries later. Also, the language is a, is very different—the the grammar, the syntax—from the older books of the Bible. So, the scholars suggest that when was the Book of Ruth written? Roughly around the same time as the Book of Ezra, in the early post-exilic period, in the early Second Temple period. And it was a foil to the Book of Ezra that here Ruth is saying intermarriage is not the end of the world; good things can happen. There can be a happy ending. We should be welcoming because the the, the, the might turn out to be a good Jew. Now, what other reasons might there be for writing the Book of Ruth in the early Second Commonwealth period? Uh, well, that's not so important that, uh, at, at this point because the Davidic dynasty, the Davidic monarchy, is not in control anymore. So they don't—they have no reason to aggrandize themselves. Um, Jews no coming Jews coming back to Israel, exactly. She, so here what happens? Naomi goes to Sde Moab, the Moabite fields, and life stinks there. All right, she's desperately poor, and so in desperation she comes back to Eretz Yisrael and life isn't easy at the beginning when she comes back, you know, she's got to go collecting Leket Shecha and Peah, whatever it might be but in the end, uh, Boaz saves the day and all is well and life can go on in a happy way so that's the lesson for the, 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 the diaspora Jews who didn't go with Zerub Havel, and maybe didn't go with Ezra are still in Chutz Laaretz, you know what? you might think it's a, a, ch- a challenge to, to leave the Galut to go back to Eretz Yisrael it'll work out, you can do it
1: what
0: Okay, so <coughs> the story of Ammoni v'loam, um, Ammonit, um, Moavit v'lo Moavit, it appears in the Gemara in several places, as a discussion that happens in, in early Tanitic times, regarding a ger Amoni who showed up and wanted to marry into the community, to enter the congregation. And one Tanitic uh, opinion was, well, you can't, because the Torah says you can't. And the lenient opinion said, don't worry about it, you can marry into the community because uh, Sancheir of Bilbil Olam. Sancheirov mixed up all the peoples of the world after the Assyrian conquest, and wherever you come from, you're not really from there, because if you're from Poland, you're really from Bulgaria, and if you're from Hungary, you're really from Romania, and nobody's really from where they, come, where they claim they come from. Everybody's been mixed up. So you're not an Ammoni, you're just uh, from the world. So you can marry into the Jewish people. That's the lenient answer. Now, if we go to the... Uh, the, the the book of Ruth, so that was seen as a source, a basis for distinguishing between gender, that men are excluded and women are included. But there's a critical theory of the book of Ruth, listen to this one, that says the distinguishing between genders was a later rabbinic phenomenon, and that in the days of the Bible and Second Commonwealth, they didn't distinguish between men and women. Both genders were excluded. So that means that Ruth isn't really Jewish, because she, she can't ma- convert and marry into the fold, which means that David is trafe. So then who wrote the book of Ruth? Someone with an axe to grind against the Davidic monarchy. That's one of the, the, the regnant uh, critical theories of the book of Ruth, that it was, it was anti-David, not pro-David. Uh, I'm not going h- to take a position one way or the other, which theory I think is correct. I'm just here to say that I brought it up that it's, a, it's a, a, in opposition to Ezra and it takes a softer stance on intermarriage. Okay. Right. Then, <coughs> Ezra, um, the book ends. Yeah.
2: Two things. First of all, the people who went, the people who were in Eretz Israel when Ezra came. Yes. I would have thought that since they had life and they had a way of living, they would have resented somebody coming in and taking over. Of course. And but to build on top of that, he comes and says, divorce your wife, get <coughs> rid of your kids, and yeah, you, we're going to do it. I, I mean, unless there was a hell of a lot of unhappy <coughs> marriages.
0: Okay. So you, you, you raise a, a, a good point, and there is a hypercritical theory among the biblical minimalists who claim that Ezra never really existed, that this is all as mythic as Moses because uh, it sounds too good to be true. That just like in the beginning of the first uh, go-round of, uh, of of B'nai israel there's this heroic figure who's, who gives Torah, uh, so too there's a, a heroic figure in the second commonwealth, except that he's a myth, he's a phantom, it didn't, didn't happen. That, that theory has to be rejected. Ezra was a real person who did a lot of important things was he that successful in eliminating the foreign wives? So, so, the book that he authors or that is ascribed to him says that yes, they got rid of the foreign wives. Did this solve all the problems of uh, irreligiosity? No, because as we'll read and we'll learn about next week and then discussing Nechemya, there was still rampant Sabbath desecration 15 years later in 444. So, not everybody becomes a pious chassid uh, just because Ezra showed up on the scene. And did they do it willingly? I don't know, maybe not. But he had the power of the state behind him so even if people are hesitant and angry about it they have to comply that may be the best answer that he had the, you know uh, will they, will they political force of huh? Of polygamy was never popular among the Jews it was allowed but it was never popular okay. why is
1: that?
0: Who could afford two? No, it, a, it, it was so.
1: Although,
0: although, although people like to say jokingly, it was an issue of who could afford two wives. In fact, really, who could afford two wives? Most people were poor, and the obligations of marriage uh, are very, very tough for the Jewish man financially in, 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 a, in a depressed economy. So, uh, I mean, it's 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 not it's not a simple thing. We learned last year, a year before, when we discussed the the Tanaitic period, that there were men who never married because they couldn't afford it at all. And Akiva married at the age of 40, and other Tanayim uh, also married late in life because they simply couldn't afford the obligations of the Ketubah. So, uh, while the Ketubah probably didn't exist in the days of Ezra, still, polygamy would have been very expensive. And beyond that, there weren't that many women there were many, many more men than there were women. Who traveled? Industrious men who were out for, out for an adventure. Who did they marry? They married foreign wives for a reason. There weren't good Jewish girls to go around. So there's a demographic issue that explains the irreligiosity, if you want to call it a religiosity. Why, why were there more men? Is a young unmarried girl going to travel a thousand miles from Babylonia to Eretz Israel? What's her father going to say? Uh, the father's going to say, Don't go. Young men with a, with, a, with, a, with a dollar and a dream went to Eretz Yisrael in the hopes of a better life. Okay. When they married farm yeah.
2: far girls, were there issues of conversion or were there, they just married? The,
0: uh, the concept of conversion doesn't really exist until about the Hasmonean period. What, what we would call uh, uh, Giur, of Mila, Tzvila, Kabbalat, Mitzvot. There, there's no record of of that of that um, institution in, in religious life before about twenty one hundred years ago. So, Rus never converted. Well, so the 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 that says that she that she bathed and, and anointed herself is interpreted in hindsight to mean that she followed the rituals of rabbinic Judaism. But did those rituals exist three thousand years ago? Uh, I wasn't there but uh, I I doubt it I mean there's no there's no record of it there's a very good book written by um, oh, now the name is escaping me Uh, by Shia Cohen professor at Harvard on the, the beginnings of Jewishness and he has a long, long chapter about the origins of conversion to Judaism. And he goes methodically through the evidence of when this phenomenon, is, uh, this institution exists in religious life. It's, po- it's late Second Temple period. Okay. So so, uh, don't say such things. Uh, th- we, don't, we don't say such things. Because he grew up as a Jew. At, at the time, it's the society that you're in that, re- that gives you national and religious status. Yeah, okay. Huh. Okay, so that's her, that's her conversion. When she adopts the, the, the national identity of, of, of Israel, so she becomes part of Am Yisrael.
1: Why would you have an Ezra's time? One of these shikshis said the same thing? Exactly.
0: So you could argue nothing was stopping them from doing that, other than uh, a, a zeal... would
1: you make a penalty for them to uh,
2: take their money if they divorce?
0: If they didn't cooperate, all their possessions would be declared ownerless. So that's a real serious threat. No, no, people had something to lose. They weren't, they weren't uh, with nothing. Uh, uh, people always fear uh, uh, material loss. Okay. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, we have only a few minutes left. The book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, discusses an event that uh, happens on Rosh Hashanah, on the first day of the month of Tishrei, of the seventh month of the year. There is a public reading of the Torah, public reading of the Torah, and everybody's listening. Uh, it says that it was miforash; it was explained, which the rabbinical commentaries exp- uh, theorize means it was translated into Aramaic because the people didn't know Hebrew. Could be. I mean, we know that the, the knowledge of, of, of spoken Hebrew was on the decline. And as the people are listening to the Torah reading, their reaction is one of trepidation and fear and, and uh, sadness. They're crying. They're moaning. What are they so upset about? They're hearing elements of the Torah, the legal portions of the Torah, and they realize that's not how we live our lives. And this is God's law. So we're we're angering the deity by our behavior. So woe unto us, uh, hitting their chest in, 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 in despair. What does the leadership council say to the people don't cry. Don't cry. <coughs> it's not a day for crying. I'll read it to you. <coughs> it's a very good Pasuk. It says like this altit T do not be uh, in mourning, the Altif kun do not cry. Uh, eat fatty foods and drink sweet drinks and send uh, gift baskets to those who don't have because today is holy unto our Lord and do not be sad so this was a happy day what day is it? Rosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah is a day for rejoicing and for eating good foods and drinking good wines and not for being sad in our observance of Rosh Hashanah, is it closer to a, uh, a solemn day or a jubilant day? 50/50. So we sort of split the difference, but it borders closer to the solemnity uh, than it does to the jubilation. But that's because we've invented the concept of the Amim Norim, the high holidays, which didn't exist in the days of the Bible. Okay, so we're going to see. Yeah, but I think yeah. Rosh Hashanah
2: is a so. Right.
0: Okay, so uh, we have an obligation to have meals to have meals and to uh, enjoy ourselves uh, physically okay, not just to daven all day but we tend to side with it being a solemn day of a very very lengthy prayer service seriousness and as for the meal when you get home you have, you have lunch but for many many hours we're taking uh, this a, as a Yom Hadin as a day of judgment that wasn't the case here it was a day of public reading of the Torah, but go home and have fun. So it was the greatest high holiday speech in the history of Judaism, in that it worked too well. The rabbis are always trying in the Yom, Yom Naraim Drashir, Rosh Hashanah, to get people to do tshuva, to not joke around, to be, to be serious. So here they, they read the Torah. It wasn't even much of a sermon. It was just the reading of the text. And that was a tremendous impact upon the people, but too much, because this is a day of happiness. Okay, so they go home. And by the way, shilchom manot laeinachon lo is the origin of mishloach manot. We do this on Purim. We give gift baskets to our friend on Purim. But really, it, it originated with Rosh Hashanah, uh, and on all the yamim, uh, the, the yamim tovim, they would give food to their friends who needed it. Uh, this is like a, 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 a cross between mishloach manot and matanot Leav Yonim. Then they observe Sukkot, and after Sukkot, on the twenty fourth of Tishrei, there is a fast, a solemn fast. In which they kick out the foreign wives and uh, do serious repentance. Let me ask you a question: Is there a Jewish holiday on the twenty fourth of Tishrei?
2: <laughs>
0: Shmini Atzeret is the twenty second. Simtas Torah is the twenty third. What's on the twenty fourth? Isruchah. I wrote an article about Isruchah like a few months ago. If you remember, I wrote a, I wrote a piece about that. Um, but there's no holiday on the twenty fourth. There's no fast day on the twenty fourth. So why are they doing it? So, yeshomrim, it's a one-time deal. That the people had sinned <coughs> tremendously and they, 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 uh, they wanted on Rosh Hashanah to uh, express their grief about religious failings, but they were told that's not a day to do so. So, after Sukkot, after the, the Yom Tovim are over, they need a day set aside to express their grief over their religious failings. <laughs> ah! So, I deceived you. What about Yom Yom Kippur? It doesn't mention Yom Kippur. So the critical theory, uh, theorists go, go to town on this and say there was no Yom Kippur. But what, how, how does a traditionalist explain it? It's very hard to explain. Alternatively, Yom Kippur is a day when God does something for us, as it says in the Torah, not a day for us really to do much at all. We now take it as a time, twenty-five hours, to hit ourselves and uh, to you know, and to say we're sorry. Vidui, slichah, kapara. We have a, a whole liturgy and a, uh, an atmosphere of active repentance, but the Torah doesn't talk about that. The Torah just says that God does us a favor, a chesed, of wiping away whatever is on the slate. So maybe they needed a day after the chagim were over to do what they needed to do to atone for specific transgressions, notably the foreign wives issue. Okay, so we'll stop here. Next week we'll do the, 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 the career of Nehemiah and the building up the city of, of Jerusalem and the walls of Jerusalem and what was he doing in Israel to begin with if he was a Persian government official. See you next week.